The following is an encore performance. You're listening to Tales from the South. This is Paula Morell, and welcome to the Tales from the South podcast. From UALR Public Radio and William F. Lehman Public Library, this is Tales from the South. True stories told before a live audience. Here's executive producer and host, Paula Morell, live at Tales from the South. Never gonna slow me down. Thanks a lot, everybody. So how about tonight's fan, the Salty Dogs? What'd you think? Check out their website at thesaltydogs.net. Welcome to Starving Artist Cafe in the Argenta Arts District of North Little Rock, Arkansas, and to a special edition of Tales from the South, a series we call The Tin Roof Project, where well-known Southerners bring their own true stories to life in front of a live audience. Tales from the South is presented by William F. Lehman Public Library right here in North Little Rock, Arkansas. Tonight's show is sponsored by the Argenta Arts Foundation, and I'm your host, Paula Morell. To my left here, strumming his 1931 National Resonator is blues guitarist Mark Simpson. Mark wrote our theme music and plays for us live each week. And our incredible setback here is made of genuine screen doors from the Arkansas Delta with mixed media portraiture. These are by esteemed Arkansas artist V.L. Cox. And these pieces are part of her Images of the American South collection. A portion of the proceeds from the sale of these works goes to Tales from the South. More can be seen at her website, greatfineart.com. On tonight's Tin Roof Project, we are thrilled to bring you one of America's most recognized and respected garden design experts, P. Allen Smith. Welcome to the Tin Roof Project. Uh, thank you so much for having me, Paul. Sure, we're thrilled to have you. And so, you're from Little Rock, aren't you? I am. I was born in Little Rock. I spent an important part of my childhood in Tennessee. Okay. But, uh, yeah, you know, here, to, here in Arkansas and here to stay. Good, good. So, a local boy. <laughs> um, now, I've read that you come from a long line of southern farmers and great cooks. Can you tell us about this? Well, yeah, I mean, they're inextricably linked, uh, good farmers and good cooking. And, uh, yeah, both on my mom and dad's side, they've been, been farming and lots of good meals produced over the centuries now. Yeah, and we all love to eat. My, my dad always used to have the phrase that um, when, he, when he really liked something at the table, he'd say, mm, 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 that'd make a bulldog break his chain. <laughs> Tell us a little bit about what you brought for us tonight to read. Well, Paula, I just I thought it might be fun just to talk about a simple little story. It's a, sort of a little postcard from the past, um, about a week in my life as a child that was pivotal. <laughs> Are you all ready for some Southern-style storytelling? <laughs> all right, well, tonight Alan is taking us to his childhood home in Tennessee, and a chase that lands him a new friend in By Way of Abbey. You know, a goat can change your life. It all started sometime between dinner and dessert one late spring evening. You know, we were an average American family. You know, four kids, a station wagon, a dog named Chippy, who we picked up at the pound, a yellow tomcat named Willard, and an ever-declining population of goldfish. We lived on North Chancery Street in a small, sleepy town on the Cumberland Plateau in Tennessee. 
The street was lined with beautiful, big, spreading sugar maples, and the houses were all very old, many of them built before the Civil War. And our house was large and rambling. It had been no doubt added on over the years, like many of the houses in the neighborhood. It was white clabbered with a generous porch, and it appeared to be floating on a large foundation or barge of shrubs. I was the eldest child at nine, the youngest was Chris at five, and then there was Scott and Susan, twins, set squarely in the middle at seven. They were my greatest nightmare. <laughs> the twins were always fussy from the very beginning. The nine months they'd shared in the womb seemed to only make them more disagreeable. In short, the havoc that they caused siphoned off all the attention from me, where it rightly belonged. <laughs> it wasn't very long after my mother and father brought home the baby, which in fact was not one but two, that I came to realize, consciously or otherwise, that I had been eclipsed by the needs and requirements of these two new faces on the scene. Bliss turned to chaos and serene turned to frenetic. My mother needed help to manage these fractious siblings. Thankfully, my grandmother's visits, her mother, came more frequently after the twins arrived, and she helped with everything. But her greatest help to my mother was for her to take me out of it all, anywhere, <laughs> shopping, to the hairdresser, to friends, or the zoo. She would arrive through the back door, rattling a set of keys in her hand. And as a result, I began to call her Kiki, the name and time that she became known by. Her daily visit was my one chance to break away from the chaos the other spawn had created. As it turned out, our pairing would lead to many adventures. But back to that goat. <laughs> On that faithful day, we were finishing up supper, and my mother made an announcement. I think we have some ice cream for dessert. Anybody interested? Of course, we all perked up. When my mother bought ice cream, she always bought Neapolitan. It was a choice that was both economical and diplomatic. With a single carton of ice cream, she satisfied her entire brood. Strawberry, vanilla, and chocolate. The three flavors made us feel like our favorite was being recognized. She made another suggestion as well. She looked over at my father and she said, uh, should we have some cookies with it? My father was a sales supervisor for the Murray Biscuit Company and from time to time would drive home one of those big delivery trucks. One of the benefits of his employment was getting to go to the back of the truck and claim our favorite package of cookies or other snacks. In the same vintage of the little Debbie cake, you know. <laughs> that evening, when our parents encouraged us to all go out to the cookie truck, it was only a matter of who could get there first. Our front and backyards were both very large and connected by a narrow gravel lane. In the back, there was a small freestanding garage and a carport where mother parked her car. 
When my dad bought one of the, brought one of the cookie trucks home and parked it at the back of the house, he always parked it in front of the carport. And the carport, you see, is where Chippy, our dog, and Willard, our cat, stayed, as our parents would not allow us to have pets in the house. But my sister was a serial rule breaker when it came to animals. You see, when my parents were away, she was notorious for letting them inside and locking herself in her bedroom with them. You could hear her in there with them, having animated conversations, as she dressed them in hats and pearls and even mother's lipstick. Now that's a pretty chippy. Are you ready to go shopping for a new dress? Barbie, what do you think of Chippy's hat? If you stood outside her door and listened, you would swear there was a deranged munchkin in there. Willard the cat found none of this very amusing and typically would find a way to escape when he found himself trapped in a room. He would usually just sit in the windowsill well away from my sister, warily eyeing her. She learned she could lure Willard into her room with a can of cat food, and we learned that even a cat has his price. Inside the house was a colossal staircase, tall ceilings, and an incompetent heating system. We each had our own bedrooms. My brothers and I occupied the upstairs, and my sister was sequestered downstairs on the first floor at the foot of the staircase, well away from us. Uh, she lived in what we referred to as the cootie zone. <laughs> I guess cooties still exist. I don't think they've found a cure for them yet. The house also had an entire living area attached to it, separated by a door in the hall. This is where Kiki lived. She had moved in with us after my grandfather died. It was complete with its own outside entrance through a small kitchen, which led into a large bedroom, bath, and dressing room. We loved to go in there. You see, by comparison to our part of the house, Kiki's apartment was opulent. She had a flair for decorating and for dressing. Getting to spend time with her in her apartment was, a, was real special, a great treat. It was away from the frenetic mayhem of our side of the house. But back to those cookies. We all headed out the door to the panel truck that evening. Since I was the tallest and the oldest, I pulled the door open and Susan went in first, followed by Scott and Chris. Suddenly, I heard an all too familiar screech from Susan, not the sound of someone finding their favorite cookie. It's a goat! It's a little baby goat! There in the center of the narrow aisle between the shelves of cookie boxes stood a tiny white goat, as astonished by us as we were by her. We all huddled around as my parents and Kiki came into the truck to take part in the surprise. Typically, when animals were involved, Susan usurped ownership, despite our parents' announcement that it was for us, all of us, not just Susan. And while the goat came to us fully weaned, Susan insisted on bottle feeding her. And it was Susan, of course, who named her. Her Christian name was to be Abigail, and we were to call her Abby. My sister Susan loved animals, particularly furry ones. She seemed determined to establish an entire kingdom of animals for herself. 
Her enthusiasm went well beyond the usual dog and cat. Once she had a pet mole, she kept in a large dirt-filled wash tub on the back porch until one day when Willard found him above ground and ate him. <laughs> Hamsters, guinea pigs, and gerbils, essentially any member of the rodent family soon followed after she talked my parents into buying her a rabbit at the county rabbit show. She had a knack for getting her way and for infecting others with her passion for animals. She carried this enthusiasm into commerce, selling live field mice she caught in my grandfather's corn crib. Her sales approach was very subtle and smooth, not obvious like the carnies on the midway at the county fair. You know what I mean, the people who were selling whole turkey legs and funnel cakes and that sort of thing. You can imagine how they would have sold mice. Mice in a jar, come and get them. We've got mice in a jar, step right up. Nope, her approach was smoother. It was, uh, she would lure them in. Hey, do you like animals? She would ask to an unsuspecting seatmate on the school bus. Leaning over, she would whisper, want to see my mouse? <laughs> then she would produce from her book bag a pint or quart mason jar with air holes in the lid, complete with one field mouse, some straw for bedding, and a piece of cheese or a few kernels of popcorn for a snack. Her name's Ratsine. Want to hold her? <laughs> Isn't she cute? Just look at those little whiskers and tiny feet. Susan was like a car salesman pointing out the newest features on an automobile. Want to buy her? I'll sell her for 25 cents. By now, the kid was totally sold and usually reaching for a quarter, half their lunch money. Abby was treated like a dog and soon thought of herself that way, crawling under the car alongside Chippy and all the other neighborhood mutts and even getting a greasy spot on her back like the rest of them. Within a day or two, she had eaten every leaf from every shrub around the house up to a certain height. <laughs> that height could be reached by standing on her hind legs and stretching to pluck every green leaf of foliage. She soon discovered mother's red geraniums on the porch and took them down to stumps. This didn't go over well with my mom, but the goat remained. By the next week, Abby had become fully integrated into our family. Susan started bringing her into the den and bottle feeding her on the sofa while watching television. On one of those occasions, my mom came back from the grocery store and caught Susan in the act. She was furious and announced to Susan that warning that always perplexed us. If this keeps up, that goat can just go back to where she came from. We'd all heard this threat before, and like those other times with other animals, it never came to pass. Susan observed Mother's ban on Abby's activities in the house for about a week, but finally hit upon a loophole. It involved Kiki. It was a Saturday. We got up, ate cereal, and watched cartoons, as we usually did. Susan waited for Kiki to appear, and the moment she did, she began begging her to allow Abby to come into her apartment. Kiki hesitated, but acquiesced. Okay, only for a minute, and don't you dare tell your mother. By then, the goat had learned to follow the ritual of the other animals and waited on the back door, hoping there would be a snack or some attention for them. 
It was easy to know when Susan had defied Mother's orders by the sound of tiny little hooves on the hardwood floors. <laughs> like a dog, or a cat for that matter, Abby explored everything in Kiki's apartment. I knew better than to follow them, but I couldn't help from being drawn in, and neither could my brothers. We followed Kiki, Susan, and Abby through the apartment to Kiki's bedroom. Once there, Abby jumped up on a footstool and twirled around in a nimble pirouette and softly bleated, <laughs> proud of her trick. Then in the next moment, she turned back toward Kiki's dressing room mirror. And in the next instance, she dove off the stool and began to butt her head against the reflection in the mirror. Grab her, Kiki cried. She's going to break the mirror. Susan lunged for Abby, and the startled goat scuttled into Kiki's etergee, knocking over an array of carefully assembled porcelain figurines. I knew that if my parents found out, the consequences would be assigned equally and unfairly. I'd had enough of that goat. The following day after school, I had decided to walk to the Ben Franklin's Five and Dime over on Main Street. I was old enough to go by myself, or so I thought. Susan learned what I was up to, and she heard me asking my mom. And she started in with, oh, I want to go. Oh, please, please. Mother said, that's fine, but just be careful, and you will all be back in an hour. I ran upstairs to get my money, thinking I could slip by without Susan seeing me. But as I crept around the house toward the street, I saw Susan standing on the sidewalk and Abby next to her. I thought we could take Abby along with us. I didn't say anything. I knew she hadn't gotten permission. But I didn't want to risk my trip downtown on Susan's latest scheme. So off we went, crossing the street and headed toward Main Street between the Magnus Public Library and the First Methodist Church. Now, if you think a dog draws attention from the public, try walking a baby goat on a leash with a bottle. <laughs> we were suddenly the focus of everyone. Heads turned, people pointed, and out of the corner of my eye, I could see men in conversation nudging one another as they saw us. The goat and my sister were like a magnet for attention. Cars slowed down to look. Children hung out of open windows of passing cars, pointing and squealing. Susan loved all the attention, and apparently Abby did too. I, on the other hand, knew this would be talked about by everyone. My parents would know it before we could get back to the house, and I just wanted to crawl under a big rock. The next day, Kiki must have known how I was feeling. She suggested, like so many times before, it was time for one of our outings. We were going to town, just the two of us. So we set out going to all of Kiki's favorite haunts, the city drugstore, Cato's, the women's store, and Hancock Fabrics. <laughs> Next door to Cato's was the Brown Hotel, where retired farmers dressed in their overalls gathered to whittle under a large metal awning that went the length of the building and nearly half a block. Main Street on Saturdays was always busy, and everyone came from the outlying farms and communities to shop. I loved to go up there because when the Mennonites would come in, they dressed like pilgrims, and it was fun to see them going up and down the street. As we approached Cato's, I noticed a small brown chicken pecking at wood shavings at the feet of the farmers. I grabbed Kiki's purse and pulled on it for her attention. I looked up and asked her, I said, 
Could I catch it and take it home? She said, well, you'd have to go over there and ask one of those fellows. So I asked them, whose chicken is that? One of them looked at it and said, I reckon he's yours, son, if you think you can catch her. One of the men explained that she was a brown leghorn hen that had flown out of the back of a passing truck a few days before. I looked at Kiki, and I could tell she knew my plan. Go ahead, she said. That little hen couldn't be any more trouble than that goat. We crossed the street to Lay's Variety Store and went into the candy counter where Joanne Smith's and a family friend worked. I asked her for a 10-cent bag of candy corn and explained I was going to try to catch that chicken across the street. <laughs> she looked at me and she said, Well, hon, as she reached beneath the counter, I believe you'll have a lot better luck with one of these hot dog buns. I just smiled. Kiki asked her, What does he owe you? Why not a thing? She shot back. Just get out there and catch that chicken, boy. As we started to leave, Joanne called out to us. Oh, by the way, I heard that was a really cute little goat you had up here yesterday. I shirked, dropped my head, turned around, and I wasn't used to correcting adults, but I made sure she knew, that's not my goat, it's my sister's. Off we went, hot dog, bun in hand. We crossed the street and I started breaking off pieces of the bun and tossing them onto the sidewalk. The chicken quickly noticed and made her way over to where we were. She was smallish, not like my other grandmother's big white Plymouth rocks. She had a bright red comb that was so big it flopped over to one side of her face like a big Easter hat. My plan was simple. Distract her, get her close to me, and then grab her. I slowly backed up, dropping tiny crumbs. She followed, and with each successive crumb, I dropped them closer and closer to my feet. I continued, oblivious to everything around me. I was unaware that I had stopped at the front door of Cato's department store, a hen house in its own right. <laughs> I squatted down when the little hen pecked at the last crumb. Then I lunged, but I missed. She flew straight up and with a loud squawk, and then she came down. She was inside Cato's. I ran in after her. Following her, she scurried under the clothes rack. Every time she shot out from underneath the clothes rack, she left a trail of swirling feathers, followed by a loud... <laughs> this was followed by a similar sound from the women nearby. Still under the clothes racks and trying to catch sight of my bird, all I could see were women's legs and ankles racing around the room. Some dropped their purses and shopping bags and ran. I spotted the hen two racks away near the dressing room. I rushed towards her, but she saw me just before I could grab her and she made one final lunge into the dressing room. I hadn't paid attention to anything around me and when I glanced up, I found myself in a small room with a large woman between apparel changes, wearing nothing but hose, a slip, and a bra. Her purse and shopping bag were on the bench in the corner. Between them was the hen. The chicken had had enough. As the lady screamed from the top of her lungs, I grabbed the hen and ran out the door. The whittlers were watching the scene from next door and nodded their approval 
as Kiki smoothed over the incident with the store manager, the commotion subsided as quickly as it had started. With my prize in hand, we walked home. I had a million questions for Kiki. Could I really keep her? Where can I put her? Does she need a nest? Will she be lonely? Could I get more? <laughs> we found an old wire bird cage for her in the carport and lined it with some straw. I gave her some fresh picked clover, some water, and another hot dog bun and decided that I'd name her Henny Penny. <laughs> the next morning, I ran straight to her pen. On that Sunday morning, there were in the straw was a white, large egg, which I proudly took to Kiki. Henny Penny wasn't a goat or furry or cute, but she was my chicken. Every word of it's true. That's right, yes. So in your story, females were the opulent ones. Kiki, your grandmother in her wonderful apartment. Right, yeah. And Susan, your sister, dressing up the animals. Oh, yeah. Now, With lipstick and everything. That's right. And fingernail polish. <laughs> in contrast, your brothers and you lived on the, quote, frenetic mayhem side of the house. Mm-hmm. And then there were the retired farmers in the town in their overalls whittling, which I love that image. So do you think that these were the kind of roles that you grew up with in your small Tennessee town? And, and if so, how do you think each role influenced who you are today? Well, on my mother's side of the family, um, it's very matriarchal. And that's my, you know, her mother, Kiki, uh, was really sort of the queen bee and sort of ruled that way. And on my father's side, it was very patriarchal. And they had, you know, they were all farmers and they sort of, you know, operated with a very different sort of idea of the way life should work. Mm-hmm. And um, so I, I really got a wonderful um, education and, and life experience among a lot of hardworking farmers who were very practical. But then my mom's side of the family, they were very, very artistic and enjoyed literature and poetry and painted. And they, so there were a lot of really bad painters in that side of the family, <laughs> and, uh, which I inherited a few of those genes. <laughs> so I carry on the tradition of mediocrity. But, you know, so it was a really lovely balance having both sides, both sides of the brain, I suppose. And this was just before uh, my dad actually bought a farm. And uh, Abby and all of us and Henny Penny, we all go out to the farm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, which is a whole series of adventures, I'll tell you. (laughs) It was just, we were just getting warmed up. (laughs) Well, there's that great scene in Cato's department store where you were under the clothes rack. Yeah. And then the standoff in the dressing room. And finally, the Whittlers nodding as you ran out of the door, chicken in hand. So what happened when you got home? Well, of course, I had to parade my chicken around and uh, show it off a little bit. Happily, Susan didn't try to usurp that animal. But um, it sort of set me on a course of really uh, getting involved in poultry. And, and even, uh, you know, to this day, we have a lot of different breeds of poultry. And we uh, founded the... Heritage Poultry Conservancy in 2009, mm-hmm. uh, and so it's, a, it's a, a conservation that's focused on preserving these heritage, these great old heritage breeds of poultry that brought us through the last two centuries. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Thank you so much, Dion Smith, for being on our special series, The Ten Roof Project on Tales from the South, and for writing us this story. Well, it was my pleasure, Paula. Thank you for having me. Sure.
The Alan Smith's books are available worldwide at bookstores, and you can learn more about Alan at his website, pallensmith.com. Thank you, everyone, for another fantastic evening at Starving Artist Cafe in the Argenta Arts District of North Little Rock, Arkansas. You can find out more about us on our website, talesfromthesouth.com. Good night, everybody. Writer accommodations for Tales from the South provided by Robinwood Bed and Breakfast in Little Rock. More at robinwoodbnb.com. And the Baker House Bed and Breakfast in North Little Rock. More at bakerhousenlr.com. Live sound and studio assistance provided by the UALR School of Mass Communication. You too can experience Tales in person as a member of our live audience. We're now traveling throughout Arkansas and the South, bringing tales to your community. Details on hosting a live show, our schedule, and ticket information can all be found on our website, talesfromthesouth.com. Thanks for keeping the art of Southern-style storytelling alive, and we'll see you next week on Tales from the South.